Hello, and welcome to On the Nose, the Jewish Currents podcast. I'm Maya Rosen, Jewish Currents Fellow, and I'll be your host for the day. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the growing movement of Jews who are left-wing and also religiously observant and involved in religious Jewish communities. In recent years, it's often felt that religious Jewish communities are on the whole turning increasingly towards the right, sometimes the far right, which has seemed to be even more true since October 7th. Especially here in Jerusalem, where this podcast is being recorded, religious Zionist ideology is on the rise, and being religious and left-wing is sometimes seen as an anomaly. But there's a strong community of religiously observant Jews insisting that Jewish tradition demands something else, that justice and compassion are core Jewish values that ought to guide us both interpersonally and also politically. This feeling is expressed in particular by members of Smol HaEmuni, or the faithful left in English, an Israeli religious left-wing movement where all three of our guests today are active. And so to discuss Jewishness, religiosity, and the left, I'm joined today by Michael Manikin, Nechomi Yafe, and Dvir Varshavsky. Michael is an anti-occupation activist and the author of the recently published book, End of Days, Ethics, Tradition, and Power in Israel. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Nechomi is a professor of public policy at Tel Aviv University and the deputy chair of research at the Tatya Institute. Hi. And Dvir is an activist with various Israeli religious left-wing groups and a master's student in Jewish philosophy at Tel Aviv University. Hi. Thank you so much to all three of you for joining us today. I want to begin by talking about this current and very difficult moment we're in and ask specifically, what has it felt like for the three of you to be in specifically religious community since October 7th? I mean, of course, there's a lot of religious voices that I don't feel connected to, put it mildly. That being said, in our sort of subgroups of religious communities, I've found quite a source of strength. There's actually quite an ability to use our traditional language to grieve together, to think about the present together, think about the future together. And that's something that's been very powerful. I feel the same way as Michal said. I'm ultra-Orthodox, and I feel like uh, since October 7th, I tried to go to shul a lot. I feel like I need religion, I need Jewish texts, I need prayer, I need community. I felt there was something about the brutality of the attack that really is crushing down so much of the things that are right in my eyes and some truth about human beings that I still hold on to. It's very challenging. So I turn to religion as a source of comfort and a source of strength When there's so much going on, I'm looking for pillars of light and morality, and I find it in religion. Actually, I remember that in the first week of the war, I heard many people around me saying, like, I have no words. I have no way to process the whole thing. And I think that the first words that took place around me was religious words said during Shabbat rituals and during the prayers. And during spontaneous uh, learning groups that we created in the weeks after, in the activist religious groups that uh, we have. And it, it actually helped us to put ourselves in the situation and to understand better how to react and how to think. Not always very clearly, but still, I think that it's really a source of meaning and understanding how to deal with situations and, and contexts that it's it's not really like intuitive to even process, to even think about them. It's very 
powerful to hear the ways that traditional practice has been moving for all three of you in different ways in this time period. Are there particular Jewish texts that you've been turning to during this time that have provided you with comfort or with insight or some way of understanding what's happening? The daily prayers, morning prayer, shacharit, mincha, the afternoon prayer, and the night prayer, ma'ariv. I think there is something about religious rituals that for me as a woman, at least, can hold up a reality somehow. Especially in the first week, you really feel like you're floating in space. It's like you lost gravity. So this is kind of like it sources of grounding powers. I think for me, it's developed over time. So the first couple of weeks when there was really a need to grieve, and there was really little focus on grief in general Israel because there was an immediate response. And there hasn't been a moment to just stop and breathe for the last over a hundred days. And emotionally and psychologically and politically, that creates a lot of difficulties. But going into a space where you can talk about our tradition's understanding of grief. And then later, as response develops and critique to Israeli response develops, thinking about issues like compassion and humility and empathy, and just allows you to open your eyes differently, both to the suffering of our own and also to the suffering of people beyond this imaginary border. A lot of religious texts have been able to allow that for me. In one hand, as Nahumi said, I think that rituals is a very powerful part about how to conceptualize feelings and things and how to look at the horizon. I think that lighting candles before Shabbat, for example, or even in Hanukkah, when we were lighting the menorah and were thinking about how to enlighten the situation around us, which is very, very dark. It's something that is not a text, but it's something that can concretize, I think, very deeply what we as activists want to bring to our mindset. But thinking about texts, I think that uh, there's many texts who, who can really help to understand how to respond and uh, the responsibility for all the people here in this holy land. And I think that also the whole group of Brit Shalom, which were activists in this land in the 20s, and brought really insightful ideas about how we can live here together, many times from a religious point of view. And I'm also thinking about uh, Rebaron Shmuel Tamales and about Rabbi Avram Chen and about the Rabbi of Jerba, Rabbi Moshe Khalfona Kohen, who also thought about how to think globally about responsibility and about empathy in many senses. And all of them do it through religious, traditional concepts, ideas, symbols, terminology. And I think that it can touch very deeply in the current reality. So the vision that the three of you are offering for what Jewishness can look like in this moment and in this land is very different from the dominant primary vision of religious Zionism that we see in the halls of the Knesset and, and so many other places. Religious Zionism as an ideology sees the modern state of Israel as part of actual messianic redemption. And the kind of nationalism that it espouses has taken a sharp turn to the right in recent years and is generally aligned with a very aggressive form of Jewish supremacy. Michael, in your recent book, you cite a 2018 poll from Ma'ariv that polled young religious Zionists about their political affiliation and found that literally 0% identified as left-wing or even center-left. So we're, we're up against a lot. And with that in mind, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about what you see as possible religious alternatives to that vision. I think it's a big question. A friend of mine told me last week, wars are really 
bad times for people who are opposed to wars. So I think I'm definitely not romantic about, at this point, our ability to counter numerically the dominant religious position of the day. I think dominant strands of religious Zionist political leadership have come to really be in love with power and in love with the idea of our strength. And they find backing for that in, I think, primarily biblical text and tend to marginalize rabbinic texts that were written over the last 2,000 years around the world and were highly skeptical of individual and collective power. I'm not romanticizing powerlessness, and I don't think they were either, but I do think that people from a position of being marginalized tend to be much more skeptical of forms of dominance and forms of power. So we're really trying to, in our own various communal language, hang on to those traditions of deep skepticism towards power in a context where we have a lot of power. Now, power doesn't mean that we're not sometimes incredibly vulnerable. You know, I think on the 7th of October, and in some instances, despite the tremendous amount of Palestinians killed and displaced over the last months, Israelis and Jews are feeling, I think, justifiably very vulnerable. But sometimes we confuse vulnerability with powerlessness, and, and Israelis still have, and Jews <laughs> also around the world, have power that we haven't had in the past. The question how to grapple with that ethically and traditionally is really, really challenging. And I think what we're trying to do is hold on to what we see as sort of beautiful religious traditions in a political context and in a time where it's much more difficult to do that. I think what religious Zionist leadership has chosen to do is go with that flow and say, we have much more power, let's idolize that power. And that's something that I'm very opposed to. I don't think it's a coincidence that we are powerful and still yet feel powerless. Most people don't draw the line between being vulnerable and powerless. And I think most people, when they address their own power, they excuse it with the fact that they feel powerless or that they are threatened. I think as long as we're going to go for power, we will feel vulnerable. And when we choose to bring in some other values and some other ways to deal with reality, we will be less vulnerable. But I do think in many ways that the question of power is a Jewish question. I don't think it's a historical mistake that Jews have been involved in so many endeavors that involve our relations. If you're talking about communism and if you're talking about gender issues and who gets power and opportunities, you always see the participation of Jews leading it. And I don't think it's an historical accident. I think it's probably part of our mission as Jews to untangle the issue of power and to handle it differently. So I think it's, it's a religious journey to break it apart. I think that there's many vectors who can influence power and thinking about how to use power. And religious is one of them. I think that thinking about all the historical rabbinical literature, we can see how suspicious our tradition is thinking about holding power in the personal level, but also like as a collective, how it could be dangerous to hold power. And I think that we have a really fruitful field that we can use. But also, I, I should add that I think that it's a very important part of our tradition to be in opposition to the big system 
Avram, our father, called Avram Ivri, Avram the Hebrew. And this word, to be Hebrew, to be ever, rabbis interpreted as to be in one side, while the other is in the other side. And it's okay to be there. We know how to be in this very challenging position. And we know that it's not easy as being the hegemony, but still, our tradition challenging us to, to think about putting ourselves in the oppositional side, the moral one, the religious one, even if sociologically it's not the easiest move to do. That's really interesting. And I sometimes feel like having grown up abroad in the diaspora, growing up religious abroad feels in some ways like it prepared me to be on the Israeli left because it teaches you the mindset of growing up and not swimming with the current and sort of always being a bit on the outside and knowing that even though everyone is doing something else, we actually believe in something else and believe in something higher and bigger than this current moment or this current trend that everyone is involved in. And I do think that some of the inner work or the psychology of being both politically committed on the left and also being religious feel to me to have a lot of overlap. Also, I think there's something interesting in this case that to be religious and left in Israel is to sort of to be in some ways a minority on the left, where it's often rare to have religious people, but also to be then a minority in religious communities where it's somewhat rare to be left wing. And like, what does it kind of feel like to be in both of those worlds, but maybe on a bigger level, what do you think they can each offer to each other? Like, how can each of them be corrective to the dominant discourse where they're located? I do think that what we've been speaking about, this sort of deep moral tradition allows us access to language, which is both beneficial to us, but also beneficial to others. I mean, we've been talking primarily about Jews, but we also have, both within Israel proper and also in the occupied territories, there are a lot of Palestinians who are our partners in co-resisting occupation or in dealing with equality within our borders and coming with a tradition of sort of rigorous study of morality and ethical tradition is important. A lot of what I've been thinking about recently is that being good, or trying to achieve good is a lot of work, you know, and just like being healthy physically, we know that you have to eat right and you need, you know, you need to exercise and being healthy emotionally, we have to do certain things, but also being healthy ethically actually is part of our job as activists. I mean, since the 7th of October, both Israelis and Palestinians were in this sort of very deep, dark hole. And it's very hard to see outside of that hole. It's very hard to see other people. It's not always just a lack of empathy or of a desire of vengeance or racism or all of these ideological words. Sometimes it's just blindness caused by immense suffering and violence and pain, which everybody is experiencing in the region. And you just don't have the tools to see anything. And I think what any moral tradition gives you is the ability to maybe look for a minute outside of that hole that you're in. So for me, like Jewish language gives me an ability to contextualize my pain and my suffering in a way which makes me see other people's pain as well and makes me understand my pain and perhaps give us the ability to access beyond ourselves. I mean, the truth is, the 7th of October, it pulls people in different ways. You know, some people just feel like, don't you see we were right, i.e. hyper-nationalism. Most people, October 7th, just deep in their hole, and they completely lost their ability to see beyond. 
And I feel like as a lefty, even I sometimes feel like I need to shut down my perspective and just choose my own family. I feel like society kind of pushes you to choose side. Even though I, I want to stand by the side of the life. At the end of the day, it's people, it's human beings, it's got creatures. But there is some things that kind of pushes me to a some zero game. So it, it's hard. It's very hard. What does it look like to resist that zero sum game or to maybe use some of the language we were using before, like to get out of that hole and to be able to see beyond? And what does it look like, I guess, on an individual level, but also what does that mean politically? What's that political work look like? I think the more you are active in different collective circles is the more you are aware to wider picture and it's not more optimistic, but it brings sensitivity that then when you bring back to a specific collective, sometimes it brings something. I see it on my family, like my family is deep inside the Israeli Zionist, religious Zionist narrative, the more hegemonic one, I think. But still, like, because they know me and I have these extremely personal connections to others from other communities, it brings something to the most personal experiences. Unfortunately, I think there is no enough of that. Like, I, I think that many communities in Palestine and Israel, and it's not a coincidence, live in like very big echo chambers based on different educational systems. And like, there is a lot of systematic conditions to make it. But like, even without war and without everything, to find these cracks is a big thing. You talked a little bit about how through activism with other religious Jews, it opens up new possibilities of partnership or connection with Palestinians who may also be religious. And I'm curious to hear, what does that look like? What conversations or types of actions has that opened up? How do you sort of see the connection between religious learning together and activism against the occupation together? I know you've been active in Hebron. Maybe you want to say a word also about, about why Hebron and what that means in this context. So Hebron was divided to two sides. One was supposed to be ruled by the Palestinian authorities, and the other one was supposed to be ruled by the Israeli forces. Basically, Hebron 2, H2, is the area where the IDF actually is the ruler. Most of the population in H2 are Palestinians who depend in all the spheres of, of their lives on the IDF. And when we're trying to, to talk about where is the pure form of, of apartheid, that's the place. But in Hebron, the other side of the story, there is like a really rich and old ancient Jewish history. So we have a very personal connection to this place. We have also a connection to our fathers and mothers who are buried there. And I think that for us as religious activists, it's very painful to be there and to see how Holy place actually could be the source of the whole narrative of living together and equality and that all of us are sons of the same, of one Abraham. To think about the potential of this place and what's happened there practically, it's a very hard feeling for us. But also it brings us a very deep motivation to try to change it and to stand with Palestinians there to try to create something that could, could bring hope to Palestinians there, but also for us, I think. Hebron is a place where we can step back and go back to our, you know, share roots. Uh, you know, both religions see Abraham, the patriarch, as the, you know, the first believer and the founder, and both agree that we are his children. And it's almost kind of rewinding back to history and going back to a place where we share things. 
and maybe a will to extend this place of what we share together. And we feel like at the end of the day, what we share is religion and faith in God and faith in his, his goodness and faith in his promise for goodness for his children. So it's kind of like trying to attach to this and widen this space. I also think that in the context of Hebron specifically, one can, if one imagines and one hopes from our perspective, see the fact that there are two peoples living in the region, not as a compromise, but as rather a hope or even grace. There is a famous Israeli philosopher who was part of that movement, Brit Shalom, which Dvir spoke about earlier, who also had strong religious sentimentality named Samuel Hugo Bergman. And he has a statement probably in the 40s, so before the state of Israel, saying that God did a great grace with the Jewish people, that in their homeland there are also another people. So it's not about us compromising with the Palestinians, right? That's usually the pragmatic position. We wish we were here on our own, but what are you going to do? There's another people, so we need to compromise. And the problem with that position is the minute something negative happens and a lot of negative things sadly happens, you revert to your previous position, which is, I want to be here on my own. And I'm not necessarily conflating the histories of both people, which are obviously much more complex than what I'm saying now, but looking at the hope for the future and also recognizing the present is that there are two peoples living here. There's a Jewish people and a Palestinian people. And not only is nobody going anywhere, we can look at it, something which is hopeful. And what Vera Nahumi said about Hebron is it's really powerful there because you're really praying in a synagogue, which is also a mosque, and all of our patriarchs and most of the matriarchs are buried under. And we really are praying to the same God and through our shared histories and recognizing that as something beautiful and not something which we're stuck with. And that sounds perhaps a bit naive to say, you know, in the beginning of this ongoing, incredibly violent and tragic and depressing, and in my opinion, avoidable war, but something which we can strive towards during these times. So I've been thinking recently about how inspired I am and how grateful I am for a lot of the learning and teaching and conversations that are coming out of Smola Muni, out of the faithful left. And there've been some amazing essays written and conversations that I think are really important. But I've also been thinking about how if I had different politics, I could easily write an essay using traditional Jewish sources to talk about why it's okay to kill civilians in Gaza or, you know, all sorts of horrible things that I don't believe in, but I could find sources in the tradition for. And I think, you know, this is the nature of having a polyphonic tradition where there's a lot of different voices in it. And I guess I'm wondering, how do you think about like where that leaves us? Or maybe another way of saying that is like, is there a hermeneutic for reading our tradition that's Smola Emoni, that's the faithful left? How do we read this kind of diverse and complicated canon that we've inherited given who we are and the values that we have? It's, it's a big question. I want to cite maybe Shimon Ravidovich, another faithful left uh, voice, who said that the main thing when we are looking about our tradition is the concept of home, of feeling at home. And I think that since we were born to our Jewish tradition, we want that our home will look like something that everyone are welcome there which is not a hostile place, that the walls of this home could be wider and wider to shape it in a way which brings more faith and thinking about equality and thinking about 
empathy to everyone. I think that these values exist inside our tradition, but our mission and our responsibility is to bring this light to our home. And, and I think that if we live there, we have the freedom and, and the opportunity to, and the responsibility to, to do that. Maybe one of you can translate me, but if If not now, when? Yeah. We've talked a bit about the experience of being religious, what it instills in you. And I feel like for me, one of the things that's instilled in me is a desire and a commitment to keep doing the work, keep doing what we're supposed to be doing, even when there's not clear material gains. And I feel like you see this in the experience of religious life when you you train yourself to wake up every morning and to daven, to pray, no matter whether or not there's any proof that God is answering your prayers. In some ways, that feels reminiscent of this experience of continuing to commit to the struggle for justice and for equality in this land, even when there's not really any material indication that we're winning or will win. And there's a piece of continuing to do that that feels to me like a little bit almost messianic. You know, the old messianic idea that even though the Messiah may tarry, may be late, despite it all, I still believe. And it sometimes feels like we need a little bit of that religious or, or messianic spirit in order to keep doing the work that we need to be doing. And so I want to close by asking about hope and belief. Both what's your vision for Smola Amuni, for the faithful left in the years to come? What's the work we need to be doing? And what are we fighting for? What do you still believe in? And, and what does that work look like? I think in many ways, prayer like activism is about dialogue, right? You enter a conversation, but the fact that you enter a conversation doesn't mean that you get a response the way you want. So you can go to an anti-occupation action or something which has to do with income inequality or gender inequality or all sorts of issues which are plaguing us. And if you're not part of that conversation, you can't affect it. But if you are part of that conversation, doesn't mean the response is what you want. And that frustration exists for anybody who's ever prayed and anybody who's ever been active in any political action and anybody who's been in, in a protest or anybody who's been in prayer. There's that moment where you feel that you're sort of outside of the universe of that injustice. And for like a fleeting moment, you're in the world that you want to create. And that's a very powerful feeling. So that imagination of what you want exists also in the action, even if the result of the action is not exactly what you expect. On a personal level, you know, obviously there's a very perhaps trivial trajectory of wanting everybody to live in equality in the region. I say trivially in the sense that it sounds so obvious. I would lie if I say that I wake up most mornings optimistic towards that scenario, but optimism and hope are not necessarily the same thing. Regarding faithful left, one of the powerful things of, of being part of a tradition is that you inform it even if you're unsuccessful. So for us, it's not only important to be active, but it's also important to write and to learn as we do it because we're really participating in a tradition which will have relevance in the future, even if we're not effective in the present. And a lot of the people that we've been quoting and the traditions that we've been quoting, I'm also aware that they were marginal in the times that they were written, but they're still part of what informs us as Jews and as human beings. So that's something to look forward to, is that the minute you participate in the tradition, you're part of it. And even if you're not effective in the way that you want, you're aware that you're a part of that. And something else can happen in the future where another person who's trying to access 
God can see what you did or, or read what you wrote, and she might be a better person for it. So that's something which is helpful for me as an activist and also, you know, as a religious individual. I feel like in so many ways and times in history, messianic movement were concretizing the moment, materializing it and saying, we are being messianic by doing it here and now. And I think even the hyper-nationalistic move now in Israel is doing this. It's like they are messianic in a way that they say, okay, we just, we have the answers now and we know how to translate it into reality. And this is what makes them fundamentalists. And in many ways, they miss the actual point of what being messianic is. Being messianic is actually setting some truth and realizing it's a process and walking and keep walking, understanding that there is something that has to be revealed with the walking. And I think uh, this is in many ways being Jewish and being faithful is just being on this path having the tolerance and the patience to be in the process and not have, you know, straight, clear answers and just holding up to like, you know, what we think is right and moral and walking towards it. Yeah, it's always on the horizon, as Nahomi said, like it's something that we are walking forward. But uh, for myself, I think that what distinguished maybe the thinking on the faithful left is that I found there also a very practical, achievable aspects that I can imagine, even in this confusing, chaotic, and tragic moment. Even if the goals are not achievable right now, the structure socially that we want to create is something that we are moving forward, and we know what, what we want to create. And uh, the messianic uh, vision is always in the front, like the Amudesh. A pillar of fire that goes before the camp when the Israelites are wandering in the desert. I think that's a great place for us to end. I know it's not easy to have conversations about hope and vision like we just ended on, especially in days that are so hard and it feels really hard to access that place and those muscles of imagination and commitment. And I also think it's all the more so important. And so I really appreciate all three of you joining for this conversation. Thank you, Michael Nechomi and Dvir, for joining me today and sharing your insight and wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you also to our producer, Jesse Brenneman, and to all of our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe to On the Nose and find us online at jewishcurrents.org. Until next time.